Well, we often say around here that we're going to begin this morning's sermon with right where we left off last week and the, the previous week. And this morning, that's not exactly true. Um, actually not going to begin right where the last one left off, but I'm actually going to go back into Jason's passage from last week a little bit so we can come into this passage with a little bit of steam. Not because Jason didn't do a fine enough job on it or anything like that. Um, one commentator called the chapter break between Luke chapter 20 and 21 unfortunate, for, unfortunate in the location it was put because the themes from the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 are so linked together. So I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 20 and then halfway into 21, but I'll get there in a moment. But the passage this morning speaks of things in the future. So Jesus is going to look at his disciples and speak of things in the future. Now, some of those events were future to those disciples, but not necessarily still future to us, meaning they already happened. And then there's some things Jesus is going to say that they were future to those people who first heard Jesus, and they're still future to us, meaning they haven't happened yet. So we'll get into some of that. A lot of that actually comes up next week in the second half of the passage, but All that to say, with Jesus here talking about the future, if you'll permit me here just for a few minutes as one of your pastors, I'd love to talk about a few things that are happening at our church in the near future, or at least most of them are kind of near. Um, They're not as profound or prophetic or as magnanimous as as what Jesus says, certainly. But um, let me just mention a few of them because they're good things to be aware of. There is the men's retreat, which was mentioned during the announcements. Uh, our small group got together the other night, and it looks like all of the guys from our group are going to be able to go. And so that, I, I'm looking forward to that, getting to know those guys and other guys better. Um, so that would be a good way to be thinking about it. If, if, if the men in a small group, if you're in one of those, a Bible study, are going to go. The other thing is, uh, there's a few actually, but, but one of the other things is... Um, The pastor elders here at the church for the last two years have slowly been tinkering with and giving a facelift to our constitution and bylaws as a church. And if that sounds really riveting, it's actually not, uh, which is why we've been doing it off and on for the last two years. But we've basically finished. Uh, There were a few places uh, in that document that we were just weren't, weren't quite following so well and, and, and needed to bring in line with where we're at as a church today and they haven't been touched in years. And so we're going to share those with you at the end of March and then the membership will be voting them on them in uh, the end of April. I don't think there's anything super controversial. I think most people just look at it and say, yeah, that's a better version of who we are now. So that that's going on. Um, third, we, we typically have baptisms in September at what's called Graybill's Pond. Um, and, and that's a great event. We make it into a picket, picnic at Sunday afternoon. But this year, we're st- I think we still hope to do that. But we're going to add another baptism service in May. Uh, May 19th, we're going to do it right here on the stage during the worship services. So it's great to have it at the picnic because we go there and it's a longer afternoon. But some of the people who I think would benefit of just seeing it happen don't always get out to that. So we're going to do it in the worship services. And uh, so if you're a Christian who's not been baptized and you'd like to talk about that, learn a little bit more uh, and figure out if that's something we could do for you and with you on May 19th, we'd love to start that conversation now. Um, Just a few more to go. Um, A few years ago, this church, um, kind of the leadership of the pastor elders, adopted a sabbatical policy for the teaching pastors here at the church. So in an effort to 
um, bless kind of the longevity of ministry and pastoral ministry. Every seventh year, there's a, a, some time off in a summer to, to recharge and uh, pursue some continuing education. So this summer, the Abbots will be gone. Um, recharging and doing some continuing education. So you'll be stuck with me <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, I said during first service, Jason went downstairs, so I'll, I'll, but I'll say again, I have this vision of September when he's back. Uh, he's gonna, like the end of the movie Home Alone. I don't know if it's been a while since he's but where Buzz says to Kevin, it's pretty cool you didn't burn the place down. Uh, so I have a feeling that's what I hope, you know, we don't burn the place down and that's at least at a minimum what Jason will say to us, um, say to me. The last one I want, I want to kind of mention is, is we have hopes and plans and dreams of, of planning a church in the city. Um, we've been talking about that for a while, and, and they're getting more and more firm. Uh, not next spring, but the spring after that, 2021. And so that's been occupying a lot of prayer and, and, and attention in our meetings as, as leaders. And, and then slowly that's going to get more and more time and attention during the worship services. In fact, actually next Sunday, um, the second Sunday of every month during first service, I know there's a lot to throw at you, there's going to be a time of prayer down in the, the little prayer room down there, just praying for outreach at our church and praying about that church plant. So for the next year and a half, every second Sunday, that will be going on. Um, sixth and finally, someday in the future, Jesus is going to come back. And so I should go ahead and preach this sermon and, and get after it. So we're all ready for that, I guess. Let me read the end of chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 45 and then read through the middle of 21. It'll be on the screen or if you brought a Bible, you can follow along with the one on your lap. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. I'll read it and then we'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher and we'll study it together. And in the hearing of all the people, he, that is Jesus, said to the, his disciples, Be aware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up 
to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to witness. Bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your heads will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let... Those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it, meaning enter the city. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled under Foot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me as we begin to study it and ask the Lord that he would be our teacher. Heavenly Father, we sang and and really prayed earlier in the worship service. I'm speaking to all of us who are here, but but primarily speaking to you, that you would have us come awake. Lord, I pray that through the study of this passage, that you would answer that cry. That you would sober us. Lord, that you would free us from being intoxicated from all that the world says is shiny and sturdy. And we would build instead our lives upon you and your firm foundation. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been here any length of time, you've probably heard me at one point or another uh, mention how much I enjoy cycling. Uh, Not so much in the middle of a Harrisburg winter, though. (laughs) Um, But I do enjoy cycling. And and my current road bike, the, the bike I have now, has... I had to look it up. I tracked this um, kind of religiously on a little little app on my phone, but 15,484 miles on it, which isn't many, there's not a lot of miles if it's on a car, right? 15,000 miles on a car is actually not much, but I thought on a bike, that's like, I'm happy about that. <laughs> um, but about 20 years ago, when I started to get into cycling, I, I didn't know anything about anything. You know, Lance is over there in, in France winning races, uh, but I, I really didn't know much. And I, I got into professional cycling, I started watching it. I'm not into it in the way that, like, I became professional cyclist, but clarify that. Uh, watching it uh, in, in admir- admiration. But I remember 20 years ago, my family went on vacation, and um, we went to a lake, and, and, and near this lake, there was a, a bicycle, a mountain bike, uh, chained to a tree by the lake. And I remember it was a yellow bike with, with bright red, um, the, the brand name of the bike was on, on there. And now this particular brand, 
uh, makes a very high-end bike and, and also low-end bikes. And so bikes you can buy at Walmart and bikes you can only buy at fancy bike shops. I didn't know they made low-end bicycles too. And, and so I remember uh, over the course of this week just being fascinated that someone would chain a bike of a few thousand dollars and just leave it next to a tree. I was like, well, what were they doing? And it, and it turns out, as you know, I started over years went on to learn more about cycling, remembering back to that event. Uh, no one chained a bike worth thousand dollars to a tree and just left it there. No one even chained a bike worth a few hundred dollars to a tree and left it there. Um, it wasn't hardly worth a hundred. But I, I had to be taught these things. I, did, I didn't know the true value of all the different aspects of cycling equipment. Now, there's this line here in the passage right at the very beginning. In fact, it's the first line I read from chapter 20 where Jesus says, quote, in the, or Luke writes, in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples. So the context over these last few sermons is really one day, it's Tuesday, and there's this uh, Tuesday of Holy Week, the, 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 the week that Jesus is going to the cross. He's in the temple. It's one week of Jesus' life. And on Tuesday, there's all sorts of confrontations. But in the midst of that confrontation, he sees what's going on with the religious leaders, and he pulls his disciples aside. And the love that he has for them, the love that he has for us, compels him to teach about the true value of things. Now this passage here, and maybe even as you were reading it, or I was reading it, you're looking at it thinking, man, this is a thorny passage. What in the world is going on? I'll tell you, this passage and some of the what we call parallel passages in Matthew's gospel account and Mark's gospel account, chapter 24 in Matthew and chapter 13 in Mark, they're notoriously difficult to interpret, at least parts of them. So I won't be able to answer every question Partly because I don't have time, and in part because not only do I not know the answer to every question, I don't even know some of the questions, let alone the answers. But what I do know with certainty, looking at this passage, I realize that Jesus is warning us not to put our trust in things that look so shiny and sturdy and cost thousands of dollars or seem like they have value, but in the end, they really don't. Instead, Jesus is wanting you and I to put our trust in what is sturdy, what is reliable, both in this life and in the life to come. So let's begin by looking at this passage kind of a chunk at a time. So when you read the Bible and you see like there's a heading above the verses, those headings are just added by people just trying to be helpful. And then there's a chunk of verses and then, you know, God's word and then another heading. Uh, this passage that I read had a number of headings. So what I'm going to try and do is just mention kind of at a 30,000 foot level what's going on in each chunk, kind of generally, and then we'll go back and say, okay, what's the main point? So let's just start looking at each of these chunks of scripture here. Um, it begins in verse 46 and verse 47. I'll read those again. Jesus is going to warn his disciples about what to watch out for. Beware of the scribes, Jesus says, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So a few things to point out. The religious leaders, 
They love receiving favor. They love it. They crave it. They make loud and long prayers. Not so God will hear them, but so they can be heard by men. And in verse 47, it says something about widows, didn't it? It says they devour widows' houses. And we don't know what's meant by that exactly. Uh, People speculate uh, perhaps what it might have meant for several ways or just one way. But we don't know exactly. But, but, but whatever it does mean, they were, they were taking advantages of those who were weak and fragile. And I won't go back and reread it, but earlier in the passage from what Jason preached last week, one particular religious group went to Jesus and they asked him this hypothetical question. And the wording of the hypothetical question is sort of given to trip Jesus up and, hey, Jesus will say something stupid if we ask him this really hard question. But, but the context of the question involves widows, or one particular widow. They say essentially to Jesus, hey, this widow lost a husband, and then, well, she lost that husband, she lost another husband, and boy, she lost seven husbands. And Jesus, who, whose wife will she be in the resurrection in heaven? Who's she going to be married to? And you're just like, whoa. Guys, I, I mean, this might be hypothetical, but you're, you, the grief involved in losing one spouse is significant. You're just throwing this around? You see, they're just missing the point. And Jesus is pointing that out for his disciples so that they don't miss it. And then we come into chapter 21. And Jesus points out a widow who does exist, a hypothetical one. Just notice here, Jesus sees, he knows, he cares. He understands what it means to be broken, to be marginalized, to feel insignificant in society. And Jesus sees that. It matters to him. And the rich are putting in their offerings, right? They're they're putting it in and, and she just puts in. There's a contrast there. It's sort of, can you imagine in our context? So, you know, they speak of big, you know, flowing robes. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe it signified their importance. So can you imagine someone in our context who's wearing a fancy suit, kind of as we're passing the plate, kind of clearing their throat loudly. <clears throat> and then they pull out the Ziploc bag full of silver dollars and just like drop it into like that metal. And they're all clanging. And then he tries to hand it and they're all sliding out. The next person tries to one-up that person. And then this... You know, widow kind of just sheepishly just puts in two, a little embarrassed, honestly. Jesus sees that and famously exalts the widow's offering is more significant to God than all the others put together. So that's that chunk of scripture. So then the next one, since they're talking about money, they bring up, well, man, isn't this temple building awesome? And they compliment the beauty of the temple which at the time had been undergoing a massive renovation project. I'll say more about that later. But some of the marble stones that were used um, in the temple, and I can't even imagine, I don't even understand how they did this, but were as large as three of our SUVs. These huge chunks of marble. Another picture I want to put up. I took this from what's called the ESV Study Bible, the English Standard Version Study Bible. You can read that, can't you? <laughs> um, no, you're not supposed to read it. You just kind of see the picture of the temple and, and, and that, um, the, the renovations that the temple was undergoing. So the outer courtyard, which I think there was courtyards even beyond the one you're seeing there, 
Um, the largest ring of, was a mile in size, the perimeter. So like you picture a football field and a track, that's like a quarter mile. The temple itself there in the center was 10 stories tall. It's overlaid in gold. These are all the things they're working on there in Jesus' day. Perhaps some of the rich who even uh, were putting in such large sums of money had stood with giant checks with lots of zeros on it and had their picture taken. We read verses 5 and 6 what Jesus says. Look at his words here about how it's all going to be destroyed. And while some were speaking of the temple, we just saw on the screen, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there not, will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. <laughs> be something else to have Jesus at one of your parties. <laughs> I, last night uh, at the Capitol Rotunda, my oldest daughter had a school event. And it's, if you've been there, it's a, it's a beautiful building. And uh, it's just extraordinary in height and the architecture and the way it's decorati- uh, decorated and the murals and the sculptures. And, 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 and more than twice, I, I think probably three or four times, you know, I'm standing with someone or we're sitting at the table just, and one person remarks to the other, man, can you believe how amazing this is? Can you imagine the awkwardness of going, yeah, it's all going to get destroyed. <laughs> you imagine how awkward that would have been? Hey, Jesus, look at the renovations that are taking place at the epicenter of our religious life and faith. Yeah. <laughs> so they ask the natural follow-up. Jesus, when is this going to happen? Now, at this point, I'm not going to reread and kind of go even line by line or even chunk by chunk. I'll just summarize. Jesus doesn't answer specifically. He doesn't give him like a, a calendar date. It's going to happen here. I mean, we know kind of when some of this happened, I'll say in a minute. But he gives a, kind of a pastoral response of, of what to be ready for and the types of things that are going to happen and how your heart as, as a believer and a follower can God can be ready for these sorts of things. And so he speaks of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and persecution by religious people, persecution by government type people, persecution by one's own family. He speaks of great signs from the heavens. These are fairly general things, but then he gets very specific. He speaks of Jerusalem being surrounded and when it is it's a sign that Christians should get out of the city and if you're not in the city when these things start to happen don't go back into the city when they start to go down so if that's generally what's happening I try to go kind of just big picture what's happening in these verses what's the main point because I don't think I mean I hope you know this but like we're not supposed to read this and go okay so probably what Jesus is saying is Harrisburg one day is going to be surrounded by an army because we're a capital city too and when that happens we should be ready to leave. Like that's not what he's doing here. So what is he doing? What, what do we as Christians reading this today in 2019 take away from this? I want to give you the main point and then I want to back up and show you how I got there. So here's the main point. Jesus sees the sinful reliance upon what looks shiny and what looks sturdy 
Things such as clothing and money and favor with certain people we deem to be important. And he sees our reliance upon religious artifacts and buildings, the temple and the protection of a walled city like Jerusalem. He sees all of that going on in the eyes and he, and he sees the lust of his religious opponents for those sorts of things. And he warns his disciples not to trust in those same things. That's the main point. Don't put the weight of your soul, the weight of your life upon things that aren't sturdy enough to hold them. You can build a bridge out of Legos. You can drive a Lego car over it, but you can't, you can't drive a real car on a bridge made of Legos. The way Jesus brings this main point home is through the use of contrasts. Contrasts help us see things more clearly, don't they? You put two things alongside each other and you realize, oh, okay, I see things more clearly now that this thing is set next to this thing. So yesterday, I I went for a jog in the afternoon. It was, my little app said 6.3 miles. I felt good about it. (laughs) Uh, But if you put me alongside a professional runner, 10K, so that's 6.2 miles, and I'm running 8.45 on a you know per mile on a snowy trail and they're going out at 4:45 you realize that contrast shows pretty quickly <laughs> that one of us is a good runner and the other jogs on Saturday afternoons what Jesus is doing here is through a a dozen or more contrast showing that what the world puts their faith in shiny and sturdy things the lord is saying Put your trust instead in things that are actually sturdy. So I'm just going to go through a lot of them. So kind of ready yourself for them. I'm going to go through a number of them one at a time. I'll be quick. The first contrast. The rich are, quote, putting their offerings in the offering box and the widow puts. It's like even there you have a contrast. Like they're putting and she puts. One takes time, the other doesn't. They give out of their abundance, she out of her poverty. And yet in the accounting of God, it's not the rich who it's said are giving more, but her. That's a contrast. Here's another contrast. We would think that it's the religious leaders, these holy men of God who are, should be held up as examples, our heroes that we should emulate. And yet, not at all. It says they're using widows as stepping stones to get what they want. And Jesus extends, instead exalts this widow's trust in the Lord to take care of her. And he holds that up and says, this is what you should emulate. That's a contrast. Here's another contrast. The temple is glorious and large and seemingly indestructible. It's a sturdy building. And yet in 70 AD, the then Roman general later emperor comes in with his army and levels it. That's a contrast. What looks sturdy wasn't. Here's another contrast. There are great dangers coming upon the world, Jesus says. Wars and famine and persecution. And in that kind of dangerous environment, the most natural thing would be to run to a city that has walls for protection. And yet Jesus says, don't do what seems obvious and natural and smart in the eyes of the world. Instead, do something that's going to look silly, which is get out of Dodge. 
because I'm going to take care of you. And I'm telling you now the way I'm going to take care of you because I love you. That's a contrast. Here's another contrast. When Christians experience fierce persecution, it could be very natural, perhaps even seem like the wise thing to do. That to Okay, I'm going to plan through everything I'm going to say so that when I have to give a defense, I know the exact right thing to say. And yet, the verses here in this passage say, don't do that. Decide now that when things get hard, don't plan out what you're going to say. Instead, trust the Lord who you can't see, that in the right moment, he'll give you the right words to say. That's a contrast. Here's another. It would seem that these moments of persecution are the least likely time when a Christian could make a difference for God. But this is when Jesus says, quote, verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Right? We often think, kind of in the celebrity culture, that if the stars align perfectly and a certain celebrity or certain athlete becomes a Christian, well then, man, Christianity is going to soar. Right? Tim, the Tim Tebows of the world. Like if we just had more Tebows, then Christianity would, pff, everybody would become Christians. And I'm not against more Tebows or whoever, Carson Wentz or whatever. But what Jesus says here is when you're considered a sheep sent to the slaughter and you cling to the faith and it looks like everything in your life is falling apart, you magnify, choose to magnify God in that moment, that's your moment. That's God's moment to be glorified. That's a contrast. Here's another. It could seem like all of this destruction is random And certainly outside of God's control. And yet twice in the passage. We read verse 22. That this is to fulfill all that's written. And verse 24. That this is happening until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Whatever that means. So it could seem natural to conclude. This is outside of God's plan. The suffering we're experiencing. The cancer in our lives. The trouble in our lives. God's not in control. He's saying he is. Trust him. That's a contrast. Here's another. When the persecution seems to come at every direction. Jesus at one point in the verse says, when all hate you. Now it's not really all is not all in that verse. Because I don't think it means other Christians hate you. But everybody out there is against you. The, the, the religious, they're going to persecution, throw you out of synagogues. Uh, governmental persecution, they're going to put you in prisons. Familial persecution. Uh, your relatives, your friends, your family, they're, gonna, they're not going to, they're, they're going to hate you and hand some of you over. When it feels like all are against you, know that God, who is not seen, is for you. That's a contrast. Here's another. When this handing over takes place, some of you even unto death, it could feel like that's the end of the story. Like that's the end of our story. Christianity is just going to be extinguished when the persecution ramps up in the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church or at other times in church history or perhaps someday in the future when persecution or as it's even happening in other parts of the world, the persecution is going to eradicate Christianity and that will be the end of our story. And yet into that context, Jesus says, apart from the will of my Father, not a hair of your head will perish. In other words, not one fraction of a sliver of your eternal well-being is going to be damaged. That's a contrast. Finally, there are others, I'll just give you one more. It might seem like the followers of God wouldn't be able to function 
without the centerpieces of their religious life and faith. Things like the temple and the city of Jerusalem can't function without those. And yet Jesus says, you can, you will. Because he's given us a new centerpiece. His cross and the empty tomb, his death and his resurrection and his second coming, which we'll get into more next week as Jason preaches. Jesus will come again and the skies will split. The way the curtain of the temple split when he died on the cross. And that will be a glorious day. And these are the centerpieces of our life and faith in the era of the church. I mentioned at the beginning that this passage is notoriously difficult because some of the details in it, and especially I'll say the parallels. And when we preached the gospel of Mark a few years ago, I just remember there are a few that are just, there are troubling details. Not that there aren't some in Luke chapter 21 as well. Um, And I don't have answers to all of those questions. I have answers to a few of them. But I do know that the main point of this passage, through the use of contrast that Jesus is setting up, he's seen the lust in the eyes of the religious leaders to trust these things that look shiny and sturdy. And he's pulling his disciples aside. He's pulling you and I away aside on this Sunday morning and saying to you, don't trust those things. And he's giving us instead something that is reliable and sturdy, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So what does that mean for us? We've talked about, okay, what's going on in the passage? What's the main point? What does that mean? Like, what do I do with this? And perhaps there are things this morning that even through the preaching of the word, things that you're aware of that you've been trusting in or relying on, seeking out, perhaps you're even anxious over them. And it might not be a bad thing in and of itself, but you're giving it more weight in your life than it should bear. Career, body image, Relationship status, a new job, or a new city, or a new spouse, or new kids, or less kids, or better kids. Perhaps Jesus this morning is saying to you, don't do that. He's pulling you aside with these contrasts and he's saying, don't do this. Whatever you would put over here in this thing that's not going to last, he's wanting to give you something more sturdy. So that's one thing you can be doing, we can be doing. With this passage. And I think that application is underscored by one of the historical details that's borne out um, after this passage and during the first century. I mentioned it quickly, but I'll, I'll slow down and just mention it again so that it sinks in. Around about 20 BC, uh, when a Jewish leader named Herod the Great, we call him, so 20 BC, before, so he's before Jesus wasn't called B.C. then, but that's how we date it now. He began renovations on the temple. The picture you saw there didn't look like that in 20 B.C., but he came to power and he's going to do fundraising campaigns and he's going to renovate the whole temple complex. And as best as I can tell, the renovations went to about 63 or 64 A.D., so more than 80 years of renovations. Like when we worked on this building last year, 14 weeks. Like they went 80 years. I was like, man, I'm glad we only spent 14 weeks. Um, but they spent 80 years 
They overlay it with gold. They expand the perimeter of the various courts. They added decorative sculptures. They installed marble stones, some as big as a tractor trailer. Which, again, I don't even know how they did that exactly. I marvel at that. It was a wonder of the world at the time. And then in 70 AD, Rome comes in dissatisfied with a number of things that escalated. Part of them had to do with taxes. And they crushed the city. So like they finish in 63, 64, 70 AD. Like the war starts in 66. It stops for a while and ramps back up again. And then 70, it's done. And, and I just get this impression. It's like they had all 52 cards in the deck. And they're placing them right where they want. And it's like they just stood back and just, just long enough to admire it. And a draft blows in. And the wind does what wind does to houses of cards. And Jesus is telling us, don't build your life on sinking sand. And houses made of cards. Also, I reflect here on this widow. You know, it's possible, as we think about the main theme in this passage. It's, it's very possible. You could think, as you look out there in the world, that everyone out there, it seems, they're doing big and great and extravagant things. They're changing the world. It's like these rich who are putting in all this money, and they've got the resources, and they've got the status, and the position, and the place in life, and here I am. I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I've got this job that's not significant, or whatever it is. I, I don't have money. I've got health challenges. I can't, I can't even do the things I'd want to do. You know what seems significant and insignificant and piddly to most people in the world? Investment in a local church. Doing things like watching children in the nursery. Changing poopy diapers. They don't give you awards for that. (laughs) We don't keep a tally like who at the end of 2019 changed the most diapers. You know? There's no awards for that. No awards for... Inviting people over to church after dinner and just having meals together. Discipling a new Christian when their life is all messy and they're trying to sort out uh, what's up and what's down and how do I read the Bible and there's big numbers and small numbers but I don't know which is which and why did, like how did we get this and there's a New Testament and an Old Testament. What does that even mean? To sit with someone and, and walk through those questions. No one looks at that and goes, yeah, that's going to change the world. And yet those two small copper coins, when done to the glory of God, I think in the encountering of God, if we had the eyes to see things the way that God sees them, we would see their beauty. As I close, I want to make sure I say this though. If we only hear from this passage what idols were to avoid and what places we should serve, And how we should feel about those places. Then we haven't heard all that Jesus is saying here. Not only are we instructed about what idols to avoid. And places we might be able to serve. And ways we can do things that are stretch us and risks just like this woman and put us in places that we have to trust the Lord not only are we supposed to do those things Jesus is always also telling us what hope to believe in and what great love God has for us he doesn't want us to waste our lives 
doesn't want us to get at the end and we had a house of cards. Instead, he wants to put beneath our feet something firm and sturdy in this life and the life to come. Earlier in the worship service, we, we read from what's called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a strange thing to do, right? It's 350 some years old. A number of pastors back in the day got together and they wrote this catechism. Catechisms are these ways to, to teach Christian doctrine. Um, you know, what is the resurrection? What is our, what does Christians say about the Bible? What do Christians say about Jesus's life and his death and his heaven and hell? And they, they have this question answer system and they can be memorized. Um, so some catechisms have a long version and a short version that are more readily memorized and so the Heidelberg is just one of a number of different catechisms. But I don't know if you caught it. But I want to end by reading again. I think there are so many links, a few of them explicitly, to our passage this morning. Let me reread it to you again. I want to reread it to you as a pastor, encouraging you of what God wants to give you in hope and joy this morning. The question asks, Christian. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death. I'll just pause. You think that word belong? I mean, think of the movie Toy Story where, where, where uh, Woody gets Andy's name written on his foot, right? It's mine. He's mine. I love him. I care for him. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. The temple, the centerpiece of their religion, might soon be crushed. But a new centerpiece is placed There in its place, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross and the empty tomb and the love that God has for you and I. It's not flashy. It's seemingly ignoble, but it's not. It is our only hope and our only comfort in life and death. And I pray this morning that God would help you and I to build our lives upon it. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in one more song? Heavenly Father, it's very easy to do. Sometimes, even at a subconscious level. In a world where we're marketed to constantly. To look at the things that seem to shine. And to look at the things that feel sturdy. And think if we just amass these things. Then then our lives will be sturdy. Our lives will be shiny. Lord I pray this morning. 
that you would cause us to come awake and come alive in the good news that you are for us everything we need in this life and the life to come. We pray this in Christ's name.